Okay, so this morning, some questions. The first one being, um, we're going to start a little light, and then we'll work our way into some of the heavier questions. Um, but the first question is, what was your favorite verse, or how, what stirred your heart in the book of Romans, and what was the most challenging as the messages were brought this summer? Yep. Uh, chapter 8, I would say, um, the week that I preached... Uh, Actually, I was preaching chapter 7 um, into chapter 8. I leaked over into chapter 8 a little bit. But chapter 8 starts out in verse 1. It says, um, There's, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Um, it's a verse we've probably all heard. I've heard it, seen it, been taught it, taught other people on it a billion times. But um, reading chapter 7 and studying that to the point where I was bringing it kind of bringing the, that scripture to bear on, on others, um, I couldn't help but then look at chapter, the first verse in chapter 8. Because chapter 7 is it's this struggle where Paul is like lamenting um, the, his, his Jewish brothers and, and brothers and sisters, and, and it's a struggle. Like how, he's putting himself in their position that they're, they're struggling with, like how do I relate the law to this, my newfound faith in Jesus. Like, how is this supposed to work? Like, I, I still do things that I don't want to do, you know? And it's this cry. He, he, I forget the exact language, but he ends chapter 7 with just this, like, what a wretched man I am, he says. What a wretched man I am, that I see what's good and yet I do what's bad. Why do I do that? And the next verse, he says, therefore... There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Um, that, is, that is one of the most uh, profound transitions I can recall in all of Scripture, uh, uh, I, I would say. That, that the answer to why, to why do I still do things that I'm not supposed to do, the answer to that is there's no condemnation in Christ. <laughs> I mean, it's not exactly the answer you would expect there. But it is. That's what Paul says. That's, that's exactly how he sees it. Um, there's a lot there. Yeah, yeah I, would, I would say similarly, of course, I, the sermon I did this summer was on Romans 13, and I also found myself going backwards into chapter 12 and even forwards into 14. But the, the, what I enjoyed the most, the most favorite passage, was right at the end of chapter 13, where Paul just kind of goes into this doxological, sorry, um, kind of a, I got to give glory to God. Just hold on. Can you give glory to God with me in this moment? And just starts doing one of these things mm -hmm. about, hey, Jesus is coming back. This is all happening. This is real. And he just can't contain himself. Mm. But, but a first verses right before that, He's talking about how do Christians live in light of the government authorities. <laughs> right before that, like this totally hard stuff, which to me that was challenging. It's, I think it was challenging to grab out of there how Paul is trying to describe this, and I think we need to take uh, the con contextual aspects of what happens in the chapter before that in you know, we don't, like, put, like Ian was demonstrating earlier, we can't put our Christianity on the side when we start to talk about how we live in light of the government we live in. Yeah. Um, whatever that looks like. For him, it was people that were persecuting. It was Nero, right? Mm -hmm. 
the emperor worship and all of that sort of thing. So it is a challenge, and I think it still remains a challenge today. And it's a challenge for me to not only work out the verses, but I would say to live out <laughs> those verses. How do we live that kind of life that Paul's calling us to do yeah. in, in this day and age? Um, we're in a polarized environment these days, and so it is, yeah, just by what it says, it's challenging. And for me, I think um, I agree with Ian about um, the verse talking about there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And being somebody who grew up um, condemning myself a lot and also believing the voices of condemnation around me for various reasons, um, that verse was really freeing to me for a long time. And as I continue to mature and continue to grow in my faith, um, I I love leaning on those words. There is no condemnation. There's not just a little bit, or if you do this, or if you're not quite that, then there's a little bit of condemnation. It's, there is no condemnation, and I love that. I love that that's the heart of the Father, that when he looks at us, even in sin and even in bad choices and even immature things that I do, he goes, there's no condemnation. First and foremost, my heart is for you. And I long for you to come into that relationship. That's what I love. And that um, can also be the most challenging <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. to believe that every day and to believe it for others, those that I don't agree with, mm -hmm. um, to keep that in light. So mm -hmm. there you go. Um, all right. Let's go on for um, the next question. Are there any similarities between the Roman world and empire that Paul was a part of and our world today? And... And combining it with another question, because the church was ostracized and persecuted by the Roman Empire, but we are not. So are we doing something wrong? <laughs> there you go. Yes. I love saying that in, where I find a yes, no in there and just kind of say that. Um, yeah, way more complex, obviously. Um, wow. It is tempting, is it not? to look, especially when we uh, find ourselves in situations where I think there's uh, much of the uh, Christian church would find itself at, at odds, even with itself and with some of the things that are going on in our country, for sure in the world these days. I know we're speaking about, and we want to know we're all in America here, so we want to hear about the American context. And frankly, I would say yes, it is very much a challenge there's some similarities that I would see that challenge us. Um, but there are marked differences as well. Um, the persecution we encounter as North Americans, as Americans in our society today, is not only nothing compared to what they experienced in the time of Nero um, as, as believers, but it's also not comparable to many uh, of the challenges that our fellow Christians in the world have today. Um, way harder circumstances um, than we do. Now, I'm not saying that at all to belittle um, what we're going through, and we need to be faithful, I think, in our day and age and what it means to, to live a, a Christ-like Christ life in, in our um, workplaces, our schools, our neighborhoods, our communities, all of those things. We obviously 
need to do that, and it's not always easy. Um, but it was not meant to be easy. So when we're finding it easy, and what I actually get a little testy, upset with, is when the church bemoans being pushed out of the center place of society. We were never meant to be in the center place of society. So there's something going on, I would say, of some sort of compromise in the past, if that's where we're finding Mm -hmm. or think we should, a place that we think we should be as the church. So I think it's just part and parcel of who we are. If we follow the example of the Savior, the Lord, of Jesus, are we going to find an easy life? Should we be finding an easy life in that way? Should things be falling, whether governmentally or whatever it is, in our favor all the time? No. Absolutely not. It, It should be challenging. But like was being talked about before, there is a bigger story going on yeah. that God wins, that Jesus wins in the end that we're a part of. So we got to have our eyes on that bigger kingdom focus of what God is doing ultimately. And in the um, smaller context of what's going on, it should always be a challenge because the world is opposed ultimately to the things of God. Uh, yeah, I couldn't say it better myself. The only thing I'll add is just by asking this question, was it a good thing that Constantine legalized Christianity in the Roman Empire or not? Like, was that, is that something that we Ooh. should celebrate and be like, yeah, that's awesome? Or is that something we should look back on and go, that was not good for the church? Uh, how we answer that question answers a lot of other questions like the one that, that Shelley, Shelley just brought. Um, and it's not an easy answer. I'm not saying I actually don't have the answer for that. Uh, but I'm just saying is because in a lot of ways it's like, yeah, I want, you know, I want the ways of the church to be the ways of the world, like the true church to be the ways of the world, right? Like I do want that. But then at the same time, it's like when that gets adopted politically or, and then it becomes the center, it moves the church into the center, like Randy was saying, it does seem like something gets lost there, doesn't it? Uh, like we, it's harder to challenge ourselves and to challenge the world in the ways of Christ. Um, so I don't know, it's a, it's a complicated question and therefore a complicated answer. But I always think about that, like, is that a good thing that Constantine legalized Christianity or not? Because that, that was a major shift in the era from persecution to, to martyrdom. And there's a lot of people to, I would consider smart that are saying that that era of about 1,700 years has ended within our generation now, in the last probably 25 years or so, that we are on to something different than our parents and grandparents had. So that's something, I think, to think about as well. Ooh, that's Let's just bit. stop everything and just talk about this for a while. No, I'm <laughs> kidding, I'm kidding. Next question. All right, got a few more questions. Um, It's been said in some of the sermons that God now sees us in light of Jesus. Did Jesus change how God sees and feels about me? Sorry, repeat the question. Want me to repeat that? Yes. So it's been said in some of the sermons that God now sees us in light of Jesus. Uh So did Jesus somehow change how God sees and feels about me? Um, Yes. Go ahead. No, I'm kidding. Um, I, I will. I mean, well, Jesus, 
I mean, there's one God, right, in Father, Son, and Spirit. And so um, the sort of the idea that, like, Jesus came along and changed the Father's view of us, I don't think is a accurate representation of what's actually going on there. Um, uh, I think, I do believe that um, there is a lot of stuff that stood between humanity and God before Jesus. I, just to kind of open up our eyes on what that looks like, how, I mean, have you ever thought about what it, what did the world look like before the cross? I mean, seriously, how did, because we're told that something major happened, like the earth shook. Something major happened at the cross um, that everybody realized, right? There was the, the, the soldier who all, like, saw this happen. He was like, holy crap, that guy is God, <laughs> right? Like who previously didn't believe and just witnessing it was like, whoa, okay, something just happened. What was the world like then, then before? What was it like to walk around where there was no freedom from sin and death available to humanity in, in the way that, that we can experience now. I don't know. Um, but I bet it was different. I bet it was different. So I, that is what happened at the cross. That, that Whatever that was, sin, broke, like I said before, sin, brokenness, death, destruction, all those things, it's actually been flattened uh, in, a, in a, you know, a road or whatever, a pathway has been made between you and God, and there's no terms or conditions or limits to that now. Like, it's, um, you know, that's justification in, in a sense. So, yeah, it's not that God ever saw you differently. Um, it's just that there was a bunch of gunk in the way. <laughs> it's not that he ever was like, it's not like God was like, oh, I don't like that person. All I see is their sin. Then he was like, whoa. Okay, now you are, now you're beautiful. Now I see you. It was, I long for you. I know who you are, but I can't reach you until some, some things change. Uh, and that's what happened at the cross. Yeah. I guess I, I take all that, and I'd also add two things to it, that something we've talked about a lot in this sermon series and what Romans is talking about is this grand arc of history, of revelation, of revealing of righteousness of the kingdom that God is a part of. So what we have to get out of our heads is somehow that all of a sudden God came up with the idea of Jesus 2,000 years ago in that right. moment, you know, right. and like, oh, wow, I just thought of something that'll fix all this, you know, right. that, and what we're doing when we do that, and even what's even kind of behind these questions like this is doing something that scholar people like to call anthropomorphizing God. In other words, putting human elements too much onto who God is. Yeah. He is so other than us that some of these human questions, especially when they involve aspects of time, which this one definitely has within it. There's a time element that we're talking about because Jesus came in a real historical moment in history yeah. 2,000 years ago. But yet, the grand arc of what God's been doing and how he lives and how he views that event is timeless. It was in his heart. It was in the heart of Jesus, who the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were there together before creation in the first place. So Jesus wasn't like conjured out of thin air and then yeah. decided... 
this is how we're going to take care of this. Yep. So I think that's just something to keep in mind. It doesn't make it any easier to answer the question, but it's because of who we are as uh, humanity, as human beings, that we can't put ourselves in the place of a timeless God who just sees things in this arc of history idea from a very different place. Yeah. That was a really good big word. Um, Sorry. <laughs> but when I think about I like that question, it. too, I often think, um, did Jesus change how God sees and feels about me? There was a time in my life I would have answered that yes. And now I would say no. <laughs> because I think that I was taught some bad flannel graph theology as I was growing up, maybe, and Sunday school answers. Um, where I was only taught about original sin and all that separates me from God and how bad I am. Instead of being taught that I was created in the image of God and in, the, in, in, and in original blessing and the fact that that is the Father's heart towards me. And he, what he wants to destroy is the sin that gets in the way, the stuff that gets in the way. He does not want to destroy me. He does not want to destroy you. And that Amen. shifted my thinking when I realized how much the Father has always loved me. Father, Son, and Spirit. That didn't change in Jesus. Yeah. And I, that's where I fall yeah. in that. Anyway, yeah. okay, next question. Yeah, the, the Bible doesn't start in chapter 3 of Genesis, It right? doesn't. It starts in chapter 1, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, and so. I love that. We're created in His <laughs> and it was good. He loves yeah. us. We're created. That is our foundation. That's our identity. Um, all right. When does the weaker brother principle not apply? Oh, weaker, stronger. So, like, brother. if they give an example, alcoholic, um, addictive, whatever. And then what do we bear with as weaknesses versus call out as struggle and sin? And do we do that? So, when does it not apply? What do we bear as weaknesses versus calling out? things yep. in each other. Um, so let me start with just sort of contextualizing the weaker brother, stronger in faith language that Paul uses. Um, so specifically, what he's talking to is this, to people who are struggle, struggling with um, the contradictions that they're seeing in their faith between uh, the way they used to worship God and now the way that they're doing it as followers of Jesus. And so I think I... I'm getting confused on what I've said first service and second service now. But so imagine that there's a person who's a new follower of Christ and their whole life they've like bought meat from the market and that meat comes from, at that market, comes from the sacrificing of animals to other gods, right? In the pantheon of, of Roman gods. Or the emperor. Or, or the emperor himself, yeah. And so they, he comes, and so that's just like, the, well, that's what I do. And now all of a sudden they're like, Oh, Jesus is, is it. And now, and I can't, like, how am I supposed to eat food sacrificed to idols, to the emperor or to whatever gods? Like, that, something seems wrong there. Like, something seems right. How am I supposed to do that? And, and that in and of itself uh, can cause us to um, weaken our faith to weaken. And so what, for them... That's who Paul is talking about. And then, and then for us, we can, we can bring that. The way I like to think about this is that to not think about faith as something that's quantifiable, right? Faith isn't something that, like, we carry around 
a satchel of faith, and then sometimes it gets a hole in it, and we lose our faith, and then we have to go, like, find it or, or something. Or, or the more likely scenario that we probably are, like, that person needs to get some faith, right? And we, and we sort of talk about faith as though it's this um, quantifiable substance that I could, like, order off Amazon if, if that were possible, you know, or, or something like that. That's not what faith is. I would define faith as a realization of how faithful God is overall and in this particular situation. And so when we, when we fail to understand or we lack the ability to, un, to, to realize how faithful God is in this situation, even in tough, disputable matters, our, that's, that's simply uh, our faith... Uh, we're not realizing how faithful God is in those situations. Does that make sense? We're not realizing how faithful God is in that sense. So when we look around, and so then there's a brother who's like struggling with something, and then we go, well, are they, let's think about it more in terms of, man, so that, that brother, that sister, they're just having a hard time seeing God right now. They're having a hard time seeing what God's doing in their life right now. All they're seeing is their circumstances. They're having a hard time understanding where this is going. Why am I doing this? This is weak in faith that Paul's talking about. And just also kind of a little bit of a side note, whatever you think about somebody else who's weak in faith or you're stronger in faith, um, whatever you think about that, just know that like those tables get reversed really easily. Whatever place you think you're in, whether like, oh, I'm really weak in faith, or I'm really strong in faith, or I'm having a tough, wherever that is in your life, or wherever you see other people, chances are the tables will be turned at some point. It just, I see it all the time, it happens all the time to all of us, where we just can't, where are you, God? Where are you in this situation? I don't understand. It, we, we say, I'm losing faith, or I've lost faith. We just need a brother or sister to come alongside of us and go, maybe you just haven't. You've just forgotten uh, who God is and what his plans are for you and where this is going. Um, keep trying, like keep trying. And so that how to actually like call out sin versus just help, a, I don't I mean that's a situation by situation kind of thing. I think um, both are good and needed, but it needs to happen in relationship and in conversation with one another. Uh, so yeah. I just add really quickly, um, I think we're trying to, when we do that, get ourselves off the hook of the work of discernment and wisdom when we go into those situations and we want things outlined for us of how to act. Here's the handbook, how to act in every one of these situations. When what Ian just said is exactly true, those tables flip of weaker brother, stronger brother, given different circumstances and what we're doing. I would say, again, for me, the best person to look at is how did Jesus handle weaker and stronger brothers? You think about the, <clears throat> the woman caught in adultery and how he handled not only her in that situation, in saving her life, really, and, and giving her the words that he did that she needed to hear, go and sin no more, all of that. But he was also taking care of those uh, Pharisees and those religious leaders that were holding the stones in that moment and saving them from what they were about to do and the guilt that would come with that. So was there a weaker s sense of them too? Or, the, oh, you're the strong one, so you get all the smack from me 
and you're the weak one, so you get all the grace from me. He had within himself the wisdom and discernment to handle both of them in the right way in that situation. And so even when Jesus dealt with the Pharisees, we always like to think about, oh, yeah, he called them, you know, brood of vipers and got on their case and all this sort of thing. And, yeah, he did that. But when one of them opened up his heart, namely Nicodemus in John chapter Mm 3, and came to him even under cover of night, you see the intimate terms that he speaks with him in, and, and then you read later on in the book of John, who was at the cross that was helping with Jesus' burial? Mm-hmm. It was Nicodemus. Yeah. He was there, one of these very Pharisees. So let's take our cues from Jesus in how to act this out, and let's lean into the wisdom and discernment we get by walking in his way. Yeah. And that's where we're going to find our way with figuring this out. You're not going to get a handbook for it. You're going to get the spirit for it in how to live this out. The spirit being the very living Christ right within you in order to do that. So, yep. Yeah, and I think it's good to keep in mind, too, that um, Paul was really concerned about the whole unity thing. <laughs> and so even in light of saying this, he was striving over and over and over loving one another. And I've seen this verse weaponized a lot towards myself, myself towards others, and that's where the check and the discernment and the wisdom needs to come in, is how do we, how do we, in light of this, love each other well, honor each other, have relational capital that is built because we put each other and each other's needs above our own. Those are hard things, and Paul was drilling it on them, and I think sometimes he's drilling it on me, even on a daily basis of like, oh, oh, like as I'm doing that very thing when somebody says something or I'm rolling my eyes internally, externally, and the Father's going, honor them, Mm -hmm. love them. What does that mean right in this very moment? So, all right, we have time for just maybe one or two more questions, and uh, I want to start with this one. And if we have time for the second, we'll go there too. But it is... um, Do we know that this verse is actually true? The one that says, and we know that in all things, God works together for good. Do we know that this verse is true? Is this verse actually true? Is this verse actually true? That in all things, God works together for good. Yeah. All things. All things. Uh, Short answer, yes, I would say. That's that's true. and, and I say that, so where my mind goes is, the, is some of the things that have been said before. It's that God's ways, um, his plans, one of the beautiful things that's, that's revealed in Jesus is how faithful God is, right? If you read the story of Israel, God's relationship to Israel, it is a hot mess. I'm talking, I mean, it's such a mess how God could, how things could come out of it where the Messiah comes out of that mess is ridiculous. It's, it's crazy. But one of the things, there's a bunch of things that happen at the cross that I've talked about. One of the things is looking back then from it, we can, we can look at all the instances of promises God makes and go, I mean, put yourself in their position and go, how is he going to keep these promises? This doesn't make any sense. 
the Messiah is supposed to come from the, from the Jews. He made this com- covenant with them. How is this? How, like either he's going to have to wipe the, wipe the Jewish people off the face of the earth, like out of an act of justice, it would seem, because they're being so disobedient, or he's going to have to ignore his, his righteous judgment, right? Like this is kind of the conundrum that's, that's there all throughout, all throughout the Old Testament, and yet it comes in that we find that he's, he still finds a way. How does um, all, all things work, work first? Because we've seen that, and now we can say going forward that he will, he will have his way, that new creation is real, that it's coming, that it's here in many ways. Uh, that, is, that is not up for debate. Um, that's the truth of it. And, and, and so along the way, what's God willing to do to make that happen? Anything. He's willing to do anything to make that happen. He'll do whatever it takes to make that happen. And so um, all things working for, for that goodness, um, yeah, I would, I would say yes, all things in one way. Despite our best efforts to throw it off course, it does. Yeah, those things are crappy many, many times. <laughs> There's no doubt about it that they, they are not good things, but all things work towards good. So that is meant to be a hopeful statement in there that, as you just said, is speaking towards this great arc of history of what God is doing in that way. And what that means is that's a word of hope for us in those moments of when we're dealing with something very real and very bad because the works of sin and of evil and of darkness are still present in this world, absolutely. And if you're paying attention, you're going to encounter them every day. But they are working towards a bigger purpose that God has in mind. And that's what we mean by hope. Mm-hmm. Not just for ourselves, but for everything God is bringing into conclusion. That I would point out as well. I found the verse here. It's one of these areas where Paul just all of a sudden riffs on the biggest picture of it and that this is all about God and his love that he can't, can't be separated from us. And so I would encourage you, even as you read a verse like that, keep reading to the end of that chapter, and you will be encouraged just by the fact that there's nothing that will separate you yeah. from the love of God, including those things yeah. <laughs> in, in those moments that he's working towards. Yeah, I love that statement of read it to the end <laughs> and seeing the, the big picture. Um, because even coming from a life where I had abuse in my background, and I wrestled for years with, if God loves me and God is good, Why would this happen? and w- then what, what is this? Does that mean I'm so bad? <laughs> and I wrestled with that verse even of, because I misinterpreted it. And I thought it, I thought it was saying that all things are good because all things come from God. So somehow this was part of God's plan. So how can I love a God who would wish that on me? And I was confused. But when I began to understand the context of it, that... No, the thing wasn't good, but the healing that's come through my life in the meantime, and now the way that I use that healing to speak into other people's lives, and I can sit with them, and I can understand their story maybe just a little bit more, that's good. (laughs) That's that trajectory of good. And so, yeah, that verse can be used and misused a lot, 
And so make sure you are understanding even verses like that when they feel confusing and you feel those questions of like, wait a minute, where's God in that? How does that work? Ask someone. That's what this is about. That's what spiritual family is about. That's where we wrestle these things out. And that's why Paul over and over and over was talking about unity, unity. Like, get along. You're going to have things that you disagree with and land in different places. But get along and make those safe places for each other to wrestle with those questions and to be okay to ask those questions and to come fully as you are with your own story. Because our stories all happen, right? And they form us. But our stories don't define us. God defines who we are. The Father who, if we think about it long and hard, our identity is in his love for us. It's not in how he wants to get rid of us. It's how he wants us so much to understand how much we are created in his love and in that circle of love. So I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up, and I'm going to close this out in just a word of prayer. Um, Thanks for your questions this morning. And if you have more, and if you sent in a question and it wasn't wasn't asked for sake of time, please talk to any one of us, to Randy, to... um, Any of the elders, we would just love to chat with you and to have more conversations and to get you connected to places that you can ask those questions. And so we're going to, I'm going to pray right now, and then we're going to worship together. So God, I thank you that we can come to you with questions and that that doesn't freak you out (laughs) or dismiss your love for us, but it actually draws us even closer into your heart because you sense and you understand our longing and our yearning to know you more. And I thank you that you're safe, that you aren't rattled when we have questions. You aren't rattled when we're angry or hurt or we just don't understand. But all the more how you long for us to come into more understanding and to seek the answers in you. And so thank you for this time, Father, this morning that we could do that. And I just pray that it's a catalyst to continue to ask good questions and to wrestle out our faith together and to grow in our process of salvation that's ongoing and ever-evolving. I thank you for that, Father. And now we just want to bless you and worship you together. And we just ask that you receive our praises, our worship, and that you meet us right in the midst of it. In your name, amen.